0: We must accept the fact that this is a global challenge that calls for global solutions. And as the UAE prepares to host COP28, we approach this task with humility, a clear sense of responsibility and a great sense of urgency. heard from COP28 President and CEO of Abu Dhabi Oil Company, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaba, speaking at an energy consultants and industry conference earlier this month. Welcome to Climate Talks, the podcast that follows global climate negotiations and this year the journey to COP28. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Jackie Peel, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Kathy Oake. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live.
1: Welcome, listeners. It's Kathy With our guests today, Jackie and I will be talking about the road ahead to COP28 in Dubai in November, December this year, particularly talking about where we got up to last year and where we're heading to or expecting to get to this year. But before turning to our guests, Jackie, let's quickly recap and talk about the latest news in COP28.
0: As you and our listeners know, of course, Kathy, we begin each episode with a short rundown on the latest in the lead up to the next COP. But this year, we're going to change things
1: up just a little bit. This year, we will be joined by Beck Markitala, PhD candidate and research fellow at Melbourne Climate Futures, as a special rapporteur to present our latest on COP. Welcome to the show, Beck.
2: Thanks, Cathy and Jackie. It's great to be here.
0: So, Beck, perhaps you'll remind us all... As lawyers, we do love jargon, uh, but what are these COPs that we are talking about?
2: And great way to start 2023, Jackie, cutting through the jargon. So COPs, or Conference for the Parties, are annual meetings that bring together representatives from almost every country, as well as businesses, non-governmental organisations, experts and concerned individuals, to provide a global response to climate change. 2023 will be the 28th of these meetings, so hence COP28.
1: Yeah, so this is season three. Season one, we covered COP26 in Glasgow. Season two, we covered COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh. And this year, as we've said, season three will be covering COP28. So it's been quite a journey to get to um, this first episode of season three, <laughs> but more importantly, what's been happening in 2023 thus far, back.
2: Look, it's an interesting question, Cathy, and perhaps this might be a bit contentious, but I'd say that compared to previous years, 2023 started relatively quiet on the climate front. We did have an announcement that the head of the UAE's state oil company, Sultan Al-Jabba, will be the president of this year's UN Climate Conference. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this news was not received particularly well by climate activists and campaigners. And on the sidelines this year, we saw a really important new ocean treaty to conserve and sustainably use the high seas, and that was concluded in March. But thus far, it's been a bit quiet on the climate front.
0: So I guess, so, Beck, that relatively quiet hopefully won't mean that we don't get a move on towards urgent action in clim- on climate change in 2023,
2: right? I mean, that's exactly right, Jackie. We know that the science tells us that we can't afford to slow down on climate action if we want to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. And along these lines, just before we recorded this podcast episode, we saw the IPCC release their final synthesis report of their sixth assessment cycle. Okay, some acronyms there and jargon. Break them down for us, Beck. Yes, absolutely, Cathy. So the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is the body that brings together experts from around the world to provide regular scientific assessments on the impacts and risks of climate change and also the options for reducing the rate at which these are occurring. So there were three reports in the 6 percent cycle, which were released over 2021 and 2022. And Jackie was one of the authors in the mitigation report.
0: Yes, I was, Beck, The synthesis report, though, that's just released brings together the findings of all those previous reports, which have been over a period of five years, and special reports, and very clearly says that climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. And not just that, but the window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all is rapidly closing.
2: So all that goes to show that 2023, we can't lose momentum for climate action. And I think with your guests today, you'll be talking about some of the things that we should be looking out for in 2023 in the lead up to COP28. That's right, Beck. Thanks for joining us today and for all future episodes. Great to have you back on the team. Thanks, Cathy and Jackie. It's a pleasure. So, Cathy, let's
0: introduce our guests. We're pleased to have joining us Dr Fergus Green, who's a lecturer in political theory and public policy at University College London. Robin Eckersley, one of our favourite guests returning, who's the Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor at University of Melbourne. And another repeat guest, Janine Felsen, who's Enterprise Fellow at Melbourne Climate Futures, also at the University of Melbourne.
1: Well, welcome back to the show, Robin and Janine. Thanks for helping us start Season 3 with a refresher on the outcomes from last year, what to expect at this year's COP, and obviously decisions being made throughout the year and how they might impact on the climate talks in Dubai at COP28. So, given this is our first episode of the Season 3, if you can spell out any of the UN jargon that might slip into some of your uh, your recap for our listeners... Well, we might start with you first, Robin. So where did we end up last year at the end of COP27?
3: Well, hi, Cathy. The only bit of jargon I'll use is COP. (laughs) So um, we know that COP27 was supposed to be the implementation COP, but quite frankly, what's been implemented thus far is quite disappointing. And we all know that 1.5 degrees is on life support. So the biggest disappointments for me were the efforts, the big clashes and efforts to try and backslide from the Glasgow Climate Pact, Uh, particularly over phasing down coal and so-called inefficient fossil fuel subsidies and also on the urgency of action. Developed countries, of course, still haven't got their mitigation where it needs to be And, of course, they've still failed to mobilise that $100 billion for developing countries, which was supposed to be due back in 2020. And I think it's important to know that that $100 billion was just plucked out of the air. It's not based on an evidence assessment of what's needed. At the moment, there's about $83 billion raised, but that's nowhere near enough. The positive developments, and I'll leave Janine to talk about the loss and damage funding mechanism, I was looking over the COP decision, and I actually found this was the first time they actually mentioned climate emergency. This was amazing. There's also a new dialogue on aligning financial flows with 1.5 degrees, and most importantly, there's a new work program on just transition uh, to discuss pathways to align with the Paris Agreement's goal of 1.5, including some high-level ministerial roundtables. So that's something that's definitely to watch. Great. And Janine, what about you? So to
4: pick up from where Robin left off, I think that one of the major victories, especially for climate justice advocates, was the decision for new funding arrangements and the establishment of a new fund on loss and damage. Now, this has been a 30-year struggle advocated primarily by the small island developing states. And this was the COP that actually delivered on the fund. So I, I would mark that as one of a major victory. But also a big surprise, because up until the final hours, we had no clue that that was going to be agreed. Okay, so moving
1: on to COP28, what are your best guesses or, more importantly, your expert knowledge and understanding of what we should expect during the year
3: with respect to COP28? Well, I'm focusing on the uh, Just Transition work program, which I'm quite excited about. It's a really big thing because thus far, most of the negotiators have focused on equity in relation to mitigation. And most of the effort for national energy transitions are national or locally based. And most of them are based on economic nationalism. Take the US's Inflation Reduction Act. It's very much grounded in economic nationalism. Well, starting back in Glasgow, we saw the beginning of Just Energy Transition Partnerships, particularly the big one with South Africa, which is very coal-dependent. And more recently, we've seen them with new ones launched or considered with India, Senegal and Vietnam. But the problem with these is that they're ad hoc. The donors get to cherry-pick. They're rather transparent. They're not helping necessarily with more general economic diversification. So here's a chance for the development of a more principled framework for a global just energy transition. Of course, NGOs are very excited about this. There's a lot of interesting and productive proposals like a a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, or perhaps the idea of a global registry of fossil fuels, or a global commission on fossil fuels. So there's going to be a swirl of thinking about this. And having a new focus on how to do this in a measured, principled and fair way, relative to capacity, responsibility and vulnerability, I think is a potentially really exciting development. Janine, what about you?
4: I, I would just like to add one quick point to to Robin's explanation of why just transition is going to be very critical in this year, leading up to COP28. In the last run up to COP27, we had an expert group from the United Nations Secretary General uh, that delivered 10 recommendations on how to deal with net zero commitments. And one of the recommendations actually dealt with the issue of just transition And it expands it beyond the focus on energy transition, but precisely on the points that Robin raised. This year, the Secretary General will host a summit in September called the United Nations Ambition Summit, I believe. And that will be a point where there will be some reckoning to be had with these net zero commitments and issues around just transition. So I want to highlight that. Second thing is on the loss and damage, and uh, one key issue is that there's a whole process now in place to elaborate upon what the funding arrangements will look like for this loss and damage fund, as well as its relationship with other existing funds. And a final point, which will be very critical for COP28, is the global stock take. The global stock take is the cyclical review of how far we've gone with the achievement of the Paris Agreement goals. And quite frankly, we have not gone far enough. So COP28 will have to be the COP that really looks at what can be actionable within the coming years to respond to the very climate emergency that now has been acknowledged within the process, and specifically what governments will be able to do to respond to that emergency in time so that we do not overshoot the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement. So I
1: guess following on from the global stocktake, and that's clearly a big thing we'll be watching this year, what are the other decisions or outcomes we should be expecting to come out of the Dubai COP in December?
3: Well, in addition to the final year of the global stock take, there will hopefully be an agreement on a global goal on adaptation and also the launch of the first technology mechanism. This is to promote climate technologies in developing countries. There'll be also the final year of negotiation, the penultimate year for the post-2025 finance goal, which has to be agreed by 2024. And hopefully they've made up that difference on that climate finance gap that I opened with. Obviously, the funding mechanism. And there's just one thing I meant to mention. The G7 summit um, that's going to be held in Hiroshima so next month is looking at critical minerals, Now, that's something that I think should be also part of the just transition mechanism because there's no framework for just access to critical minerals. But sadly, I think the G7 is focusing more on responding to Chinese control of those critical minerals rather than thinking about how to share these rare resources so that everyone gets to enjoy the energy transition. What about you, Janine?
1: What are the outcomes or decisions you're hoping for?
4: I think, Robin was very comprehensive in what are the other things that we would need to look at. And I think it was really important that um, she mentioned the G7 summit, because I think what we have to start looking at these COPs as, um, they're not just an endpoint, they're an entryway into all these different processes. So you have the G7 summit, which is going to be critical for setting the signals for a G20 summit, which is later in the year. We have the World Bank group meetings in April, followed by World Bank Group meetings in October. All of these will create sort of a a landscape within which a COP28 decision, whether it's a cover decision or a political declaration on global stocktake, can begin to show a course correction towards the 1.5 degree pathway. And I think that is really critical. That's really what needs to come out of COP28. It needs to be that plan where we get on track to ensure that in fact we do protect the climate system. There are other processes that probably the audience should know about, and that is um, in relation to these various movements for international justice to weigh in on climate governance. We have a Vanuatu-led request for an advisory opinion to the International Court of Justice. We have another one led by Antigua and Barbuda and some other small island developing states, to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. And then one more local, Chile and Colombia to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. All of these, again, come together. When we look at COP28, it's responding to a much wider landscape of action and policy that need to be in place in order for us to make good on Paris. Oh, goodness. As always, Robin and Janine, you are the perfect
1: guests to allow our listeners to navigate the complexities that are the COPs and, and all the bits in between. So thank you for joining us again today. You're welcome. Okay, Jackie, let's just briefly touch on the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, synthesis report just released with alarm bells saying that there is a rapidly closing window for transformative climate action, no less. Firstly, can you explain what this synthesis report is and what are your key takeouts from it?
0: So, Kathy, the synthesis report reflects all of the work that climate scientists globally have been doing through the IPCC over the last five years over what's called the sixth assessment cycle. So, that's a number of different reports, including the ones that I was involved in, Working Group 3 report, Working Group 1, Working Group 2, and some of the special reports. But rather than just sort of summarising what they all say, it really synthesises And it's kind of like a handbook for climate science. It's the latest information and it's really clear about the challenges that we face. I think in terms of the takeaways, there's probably four main ones for me. One is I think compared to a lot of other IPCC synthesis reports, this one is absolutely no holds barred in terms of the language. It's really clear and it's pretty blunt I think there's 200 references to high confidence in the report. This means the scientists basically see no room for error in terms of what the evidence is saying. So they're pretty sure, pretty damn sure, that this is what we face in the future. The second thing that I think is a a big takeaway is this rapidly closing window for action that you mentioned. And and what that's all about is the 1.5 degrees goal That is rapidly out of reach. People have talked about it being on life support, endless last gasp, all of that kind of stuff. So it really is that we're losing the capacity to keep to 1.5. Thirdly, I think the inequities that that generates, this report really highlights that there are going to be massive inequities in how climate change is experienced uh, across different parts of the world with the most vulnerable communities generally experiencing the highest impacts and having contributed least to the problem. So a real climate justice issue, but that's also an intergenerational issue. There's a a figure in the report that I'd really urge everyone to have a look at. It's a fantastic figure. It's got the bars of different colours showing the increasing warming and then maps that against different generations. If you were born in 1950, 1980 or 2000. And essentially, if you're a kid born in 2000, that's our current preschoolers. The chance that those kids have of facing extreme weather events in their lifetime is three to four times more than their grandparents. So we're really creating a future here that's that's going to be very different for our present and future generations. And finally, there is a kind of hope, if you like your hope, in a fairly bracing kind of variety. Essentially what the IPCC says is that if we're all action stations on policy, law and implementation, we've got the tools, we just have to act. So there's a phrase that IPCC scientists have been using, everything, everywhere, all at once. That's the kind of level of action that's needed and it's not just ringing alarm bells, it's really sort of final siren before we usher in an age of, of very significant warming. So it's it's probably the last synthesis report that we'll have from the IPCC before the turn of the next decade. So this is really the time for action and that's made very clear.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, you're very good at summarising thousands and thousands of not only pages but hours of amazing people's work there, Jackie. Very useful, but goodness me, very dire. And there's always dire situations in the lead-up to these COP meetings, but do you think that this is actually going to affect COP outcomes or discussions this year?
0: Look, I think it really does change the stakes for this COP. We heard at the start of the episode who's going to be the president of the the COP and uh, there have been sort of low expectations based on that. But I think this scientific report really ups the ante in terms of what we might lose if, if we don't take action fast. And particularly, it puts the pressure on around uh, fossil fuels. There's very clear statements in the IPCC synthesis report that we can't keep approving new oil and gas. And existing fossil fuel infrastructure is already going to deliver us the emissions that sail past one5 so I'd expect that we're going to have a stronger push around language on phasing down or phasing out fossil fuels and that that will be a real litmus test for the COP this year. Of course, it's also a litmus test for countries who are considering and supposed to be updating their nationally determined contributions as we head into the global stock take process at COP28. For a country like Australia, I think the pressure will be on, not just to say, oh, look, we've done a good job in in upping our um, emissions reduction and starting to introduce laws like the proposed safeguard mechanism, but at the same time, what are we doing about fossil fuel exports, which we know in a country like Australia is the major source of our contribution to emissions.
1: So many topics that you just mentioned there that we could continue on, but let's draw this to a close and thank you again, Jackie, for your insights flagging topics that will be covered on future episodes and listeners, there was also a good plug you made there about the figure in the synthesis report to remind everyone that our show notes feature a lot of links for more information about topics covered or people that we speak to.
0: Hi, Fergus. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today.
5: Hi, Jackie. My pleasure.
0: So, Fergus, first up, you're a Melbourne Law School alumni. What brings you back to Melbourne?
5: Yeah, well, as you say, I did my studies here. I grew up in Melbourne, so I have lots of friends, family, colleagues here. So I'm always looking for an excuse to come back to Melbourne. Um, And I think more substantively, I'm doing some research and more policy and legal oriented work that's particularly relevant for Australia. So for example, I'm doing some work on fossil fuel related litigation, particularly questions of fact and evidence arising in, in fossil fuel litigation that's relevant to Australia. And I'm just embarking on a new project about rich fossil fuel producing countries and the, the the political pressures that they're under for climate leadership and how they reconcile that with their fossil fuel expansionist ambitions. So Australia is obviously a, a prime category for some research on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we do talk quite a lot about Australia, uh, even though this is a podcast that's focused on the international negotiations. So I might just ask you, in that context of the research that you're doing, how much do the the COP meetings and the decisions that are made at COP each year really matter for your work.
5: Yeah, I think what really matters more at the COP level, at the UNFCCC level, is kind of the big agreements, right? So I think the, the Paris Agreement was important. Uh, one of my old colleagues sort of calls it the mood music, right? People think that there's progress at the international level and the businesses and governments are perhaps more likely to do things. But I think the big agreements or the big failures of agreements kind of shape the discourse. They kind of shape the goals. They shape the way things are framed and the kind of broad orientation of, of policy. But I don't I don't really think they they shape the the fundamental drivers of action and inaction on climate change. I mean I really think that it's really domestic policy and domestic politics that really shapes climate action and inaction. And among the powerful countries, it's you know it's really things like military and strategic considerations, it's uh, cap- the capital accumulation goals of the key companies. it's wanting to keep their electorates happy by keeping energy prices low. These are the things that really drive, Climate action and inaction, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of the most powerful states have significant fossil fuel-related interests. And you know, in a in a system where it's consensus that decides, you know, how fast the progress is at the international level, unfortunately, those states really shape the outcomes. So, yeah, I, I sort of don't tend to follow the minutiae of the international processes, and a lot of my attention is more on domestic politics.
0: Yeah, look, that makes a lot of sense. And it's good to keep that context in mind because, of course, the international meetings at the COPS are increasingly becoming a kind of circus. And uh, more fossil fuel lobbyists, for example, attending a lot of the COPS than small island state representatives, for example. I mean, that's a particular concern at COP. 28 because we are holding it this year in Dubai the president of the COP is also a CEO of one of the the leading oil producing companies in in the UAE so what's the role of the fossil fuel lobby in in all of this are you kind of expecting that they'll derail climate talks or what sorts of uh, impacts do they have in, in in shaping both the international mood music if you like and also the domestic policy?
5: Well, I think they, they have a, a huge influence, and I think there's a lot of good academic work and and more sort of you know work by NGOs that's really documented the extent to which the fossil fuel company, not just the fossil fuel company, they obviously ju- justifiably come in for the most attention, but actually a lot of carbon intensive, carbon dependent industries and their industry groups actually you know play a pretty pernicious role in in obstructing climate action, and not just obstructing climate action, but actively advancing a kind of pro fossil fuel or um, carbon intensive agenda you know fossil fuel subsidies being the obvious kind of example there um a sort of anti climate agenda if you will so i think they that they play a very important role and that's both sort of behind the scenes lobbying as well as kind of campaign donations and and that kind of influence as well as their public influence in shaping public debate sponsoring sports events and cultural institutions advertising public relations so yeah i think it's hugely problematic and i think if you if you sort of come back to the mechanics of international relations and the UNFCCC, you know, as we discussed earlier, is a consensus-oriented body about cooperation, well, I think when you have such powerful fossil fuel interests and and the object of the game is cooperation and consensus, well, then they're always going to put a brake on what's achievable and undermine policy and shape things at the margin. They might not completely derail um, the talks, but they can certainly... Influence the minutiae of decisions and and kind of orient the direction of the talks, you know. And I think actually what we're seeing is that what's more effective is actually confronting, you know, civil society organisations, even sort of plucky states like you know some of the Pacific Island states that are that are starting to call out this behaviour and and actually critique it and sort of naming and shaming. And I think that kind of conflictual politics is actually an important part of both the international and and domestic climate sort of politics more broadly. And that that's particularly valuable when it comes to these kind of sort of more nefarious actors, if you will.
0: Thanks, Fergus. That's, that's a really good perspective for us to bring in mind. And we'll also be talking a lot across the season about the role of other sites of political resistance, if you like, uh, to produce better climate action. So thanks for joining us today.
5: My pleasure.
1: Thank you to our guests, Markey-Towler, Fergus Green, and podcast regulars Robin Eckersley and Janine Felsen for joining us today. And to our listeners for tuning in for Season
0: 3. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Jackie Peel. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast produced by Greta Robenstone, Rebecca Markey-Towler, Ben Chandler and Andy Shue. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for again providing the show's music taken from their album, Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to the Climate
1: Talks podcast. You'll find more information about this episode and our guests in the show notes. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and at MCF Unimelb. Thanks for listening.